Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hi there, it's Alan Cross, and for the next few weeks of the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, we're going back to revisit a series we did a little while ago called 100 Weird Things About New Rock. This is a 10-part series, and it explored a lot of topics, with each episode dealing with a particular brand of weirdness, sex, the law, drugs, strange recordings, excess, road stories, bad behavior, and more. There's a lot that goes into the music that we don't always hear about, despite what you may hear on the internet. So it's kind of like my job to fill you in. You ready for some weirdness? Okay, but don't say I didn't warn you. I have a fascination with the strange. What seems ordinary at first glance is, uh, well, not ordinary at all. Once you get in the habit of looking past the obvious, the universe opens up in some very interesting, very unexpected, and really cool ways. For example, if you're ever in Albania and you agree with what that Albanian guy is saying to you, shake your head from side to side. If you disagree with what he's saying, nod. In other words, do the opposite of what you would do at home. That's just the way it is in Albania. Here's another. How many different characters have been featured on The Simpsons? Think about that. Those who have had the time to count say that the number is 320. Okay, and I got one more. The highest possible score on an old-style Pac-Man game, you know, the stand-up game, is 3,333,360. This comes at the end of level 256. If you try to go beyond that, the game suffers what can be best described as a nervous breakdown, and the display goes all weird, and it's really game over. So stuff like this, which I collect, got me thinking. Would it be possible to compile a list of the weirdest things ever from the world of new rock and alternative music? Well, of course it would. Prepare for wonderment. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome to the show. I'm Alan Cross, and this is part one of a series entitled 100 Weird Things About New Rock. Ten shows each featuring 10 strange and wonderful things that are guaranteed to amaze in some way. This show, part one, is entitled 10 Weird Recordings. I've gone through the entire ongoing history archives and selected 10 recordings that are in their own way rather special or mystical or legendary or just plain strange. Now, this isn't a list of the weirdest recordings of all time. I mean, weird is in the ear of the beholder, correct? But what you're about to hear is among the oddest recordings I've ever encountered in the decades of doing the show. And we're going to begin with a B-side from 1978. And I'm including this one because I probably get more email about this one song than any other. And no matter how many times we discuss this track on the show or how many times I answer the emails, they just keep on coming. So here it is again. The group is called Street Band. They were more or less a straight-ahead rock band trying to make a living in the UK. In 1978, they issued a 7-inch single on an independent label called Logo. On side one was a song called Hold On, and it had absolutely no impact on the public whatsoever. Zero. It was a failure. But fortunately for street band, the late 1970s was a time of much labor strife in Britain. The miners were on strike, the garbage collectors were on strike, the nurses and doctors were on strike, and the people who bake the nation's bread were on strike. And it just so happened that Street Band released Hold On 
at the time of the baker's strike. The B-side spoke of bread, or more specifically, the joys of making toast. The story goes that during a gig, the band needed to stretch things out a little bit, so they vamped on the subject of toast. And when it came time to record a throwaway B-side for Hold On, they formalized things. Legend has it that someone at the BBC discovered the track during the Baker strike and put it on the air. And the result was a quirky and very unexpected hit. Well, I go down the supermarket with me basket in me and I'm walking from one counter to another trying to find the bread store, but I can't find it anywhere. And then I bump into a mother with a baby in a basket and she says, Oh, let you start him off again. I'll come down and have a little bit of peace and quiet and get some bread to go home to make toast. Street Band, with a song called Toast from 1978. Naturally, they were soon branded as a novelty act, and they broke up shortly thereafter. But just to make things a little bit weirder, one of the guys in the band went on to have major hits with songs like this. Recognize that? That's Paul Young, ex of Street Band, who became a multi-platinum selling blue-eyed soul singer in the 1980s. Okay, second weird recording. It features the Pope. Back in the 1970s, there was a form of prog rock from Germany that was dubbed Krautrock. No disrespect intended, this is what they call it, Krautrock. One of the most influential groups of that scene was called Can. They were rather avant-garde, taking their rock cues from classical music and jazz more than anything else. Guys like Damon Albarn are blur, big fans of these guys. The key member of Can was a dude named Holger Chuke. When he went solo, he released a 1987 album entitled Rome Remains Rome, which featured a track called Blessed Easter. Now, for this song, Holger Chuke recorded Pope John Paul II's Easter Mass and his Easter Address over shortwave radio, and then he set it to music. Now, sampling the Pope was considered to be uber-controversial in 1987. It also didn't help that the Pope was credited in the liner notes as Pope Star Wojitla and his swinging nuns, and that the sample was completely unauthorized. But here it is, rocking Pope John Paul II with Holger Chuke. <laughs> Holger Tuke featuring samples of Pope Star Wojitla and his swinging nuns. That's Pope John Paul II and his Easter Mass from somewhere in 87. That's weird recording number two. The next recording features a singing computer. And it's not a modern computer either. It's an IBM 1401, one of those room-filling mainframes from the 1960s. Johan Johansson is from Iceland and is part of that whole avant-garde performance art community. His father was a computer engineer who operated the very first computer ever brought into Iceland, which was the aforementioned IBM 1401 data processing unit, which was manufactured in 1964. So dad, Gunnar Johansson, was a musician himself. And he got a little bored at work and began playing with the computer in ways that that really weren't intended by its designers. You see, the machine emitted strong electromagnetic waves, and by programming the memory in the computer in specific ways, Dad could get the computer to sing certain notes and melodies. 
those notes and melodies were picked up by a radio receiver next to the computer. And from there, it was easy to record these notes and melodies on a tape recorder. People thought this was pretty cool. A singing computer. And when the machine was retired in 1971, it was actually given a funeral where it got to sing one last time. In 2006, Gunner's son, Johan, took these recordings and rearranged them into an album called IBM 1401, a user's manual. It's hauntingly beautiful. And here's a sample that incorporates part of the actual training manual. CWTCCM190 for details of the digit adjustment. Johan Johansson and the singing IBM 1401 computer. We'll call that weird recording number three. Weird recording number four is steeped in legend. I, I can't imagine another record that is harder to listen to, yet accorded so high a standing in the world of rock. Well, at least by some people. I've got the story of the most alienating, aggravating, and awful-sounding rock record of all time next. Welcome back to part one of a series entitled 100 Weird Things About New Rock. And this time we're looking at 10 of the strangest recordings ever released. Lou Reed was one of the founders of the legendary Velvet Underground. By 1975, he had gone solo, made friends with people like David Bowie, and had released a couple of critically acclaimed albums. But Lou was never a very cheerful guy. He was unhappy. He didn't like his record company, and he wanted out of his contract. However, contracts being contracts... He had to deliver at least one more record, and the label was holding him to it. I don't care if you're unhappy. We want one more record from you. So Lou said, okay, I will live up to my obligations. But what he gave RCA Records was the most unlistenable album of all time. He called this record Metal Machine Music. Now, before we go on with the story, we should have a listen to a sample of this album. There is nothing wrong with your radio. There is nothing wrong with the computer. There's nothing wrong with the equipment at this end. This is how the record sounds. This is how the record was intended to sound. This is the record. This goes on for 64 minutes. It's pretty much nothing but guitar feedback recorded at different speeds with different amounts of reverb. Lou essentially gave a couple of guitars weird tunings, and then he set them in front of amplifiers, and he just let them squeal. And, and no, Lou didn't bother with a regular recording studio. Most of this stuff was recorded in his New York apartment. Can you just imagine being Lou's neighbors at the time? There are several explanations about what's going on here. The first was, this was a screw-you move by Lou to the label and by the label to Lou. You want another record out of me? Here's another record, release this. Okay, smart guy, we will. We'll see if your career survives this crap. The second explanation is that Lou was dead serious about this record, but he does admit being really, 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 really stoned during this period. There was some pretentious explanation about this being the ultimate heavy metal record and that Lou was just trying to take that genre to its ultimate and final conclusion, but I mean, really be by that? So it came to pass that Metal Machine Music appeared in stores as a double vinyl album in 1975. Four sides of this electronic sludge. It was also issued as an eight-track tape. 
but unlike the album, there were no breaks between the four separate pieces, just 64 unbroken minutes of this stuff. And as a final screw you, the end of side four of the vinyl version featured a locked, continuous groove. Which means that if anyone ever allowed the needle of the record to play out on side four, the final groove would play over and over and over and over and over until the record wore out. But then, things got really weird. After some initial brutal reviews, some people profess to really dig this record. There are those who believe that metal machine music set the stage for both industrial and ambient music. They call metal machine music highly influential. Others, like Sonic Youth, influential in their own right, use samples from the record to make their own music. And the weirdest of all is a German group called Zeitkratzer, who performs metal machine music um, note for note, in concert, based on a transcription that they somehow managed to get from the original record. They've even covered the album on a CD of their own. Now, should you wish to own a copy of Metal Machine Music, it is still available. The latest reissue was on CD in 2000 on a label called Buddha Records. And here's the best stat of them all. Since its release in 1975, Metal Machine Music has sold more than 100,000 copies. It's amazing. This next recording is an example of what we call outsider music. This is music made by people who have a deluded sense of their own talents. The music tends to be just dreadful, but at the same time, they perform with such zest and gusto and honesty that you really have to admire them. Their art may be flawed, but it's pure. Does that make sense? The most famous of all the outsider musicians is a guy from Houston, Texas, who goes by the name Jandek. Now, we think his real name is Sterling Richard Smith. Since 1978, Jandek has released no fewer than 51 indie albums on his own label called Corewood Industries. He's released vinyl albums, CDs, and even DVDs. And in the process, he's amassed a sizable number of fans who are fascinated with this guy. Almost nothing is known about Jandek, and his fans like it that way. There's just something utterly mysterious and weird about a guy who only communicates through an anonymous post office box in Houston. And the music itself is just weird. Wacky tunings, stream of consciousness lyrics, off-key singing, weird chord structures, you name it, it's here. But it's all delivered with such earnestness that you just know that the guy is serious about what he's doing. And he's, he's released more than 50 albums! Before we go any further, I need to give you a sample. This is Jandek. The year is 1982, and this is an album entitled Living in a Moon So Blue. The dude is called Jandek. The track is Strange Phenomenon. And did, did I mention that he's released more than 50 albums just like that? And before you ask, Jandek is real. In 2004, he began to make some live appearances for the first time and even appeared in Toronto. The show sold out in seconds. There's a movie about the guy, a documentary about the guy. Jandek on Corwit. Just amazing stuff. Our next strange recording is on vinyl. We first heard of Nash the Slash when he was part of a Toronto-based prog rock band called FM in the late 1970s. He's a multi-instrumentalist and a whiz in a recording studio. 
And we think Nash's real name is Jeff, but that's never been confirmed or denied. His shtick was to always appear on stage completely wrapped in surgical bandages, including his face. He looked like Claude Rains in that old 1933 movie, The Invisible Man. After he left FM, he launched a solo career, which resulted in a bunch of albums and some soundtrack work on a number of Canadian films. In 1981, Nash released an instrumental album called Decomposing. And what made this EP so interesting was that it was written, arranged, and recorded so that each of the five tracks sounded good no matter what speed you played it on on your turntable. 33 and a third, 45, or even 78. Let me show you what I mean. This is entitled The Calling, and it opens up side one of Decomposing. Now first, let's listen to it at 33 and a third. Now, here's the same bit at 45 RPM. And finally, here it is at 78 RPM. Toronto's Nash the Slash with his Playable at Any Speed EP called Decomposing from 1981. Hey, try that with a CD or MP3 file. Our next two strange recordings, numbers 7 and 8 on our list, are much more conventional. Both are interesting from a historical point of view, and both have to do with Nirvana. So much of Nirvana was wrapped up in Kurt Cobain that when he died, no one expected anything to happen with the other two guys in the band. I mean... There was the bass player and the drummer. And out of those two, the bets were that Chris Novoselic, the bass player, was the one with any potential for life after Kurt. The drummer, that uh, Dave Grohl guy, it's just the drummer. <laughs> what was he going to do, form his own band? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, okay. I mean, let's face it. The success and quality of the Foo Fighters surprised everybody. But it really shouldn't have. There was one tiny hint that Dave Grohl could do more than keep time for Kurt. In mid-February of 1993, Nirvana set up at a place called Pachyderm Studios in Cannon Falls, Minnesota. They were there to record tracks for what would be the follow-up to the Nevermind album. And in 14 days, they recorded 16 songs. A dozen of them ended up on the In Utero album, while the other four found homes elsewhere. One of those four semi-orphan songs was a track called Marigold. This is the one and only song written by Dave Grohl to show up anywhere when he was with Nirvana. He had written the song and even recorded it as a solo thing in 1990, about a year before he joined the band. On the Pachyderm recording, he sings, he plays the drums, and most likely is the guy on guitar. Although no one can confirm it, it's almost like Dave did this one completely on his own after the other two guys had gone home for the night. The only place you can find this recording is deep at the back of the CD single for Heart Shaped Box, the first single from In Utero. And if you listen with a little bit of hindsight, you can maybe hear a little future Foo Fighters in here. Check it out. Oh. 
Marigold, the only Nirvana song written and sung by Dave Grohl. That's our seventh weird recording. Recording number eight also involves Nirvana and Kurt's wife, Courtney Love. One of the big knocks against Courtney was that she must have had help writing her breakthrough album, Live Through This, which came out in 1994. Detractors didn't think she had it in her to create such a solid album. And since she was married to Kurt, the anti-Courtney contingent accused her of getting him to help her with the music. And to be fair, it's not an unreasonable assumption. I mean, hell, if you were married to the biggest rock star on the planet and you needed to make the definitive album of your career, wouldn't you ask? I mean, I can imagine it, right? Honey, I'm having trouble with the bridge on this one song. Be a dear and come down to the studio and work with me on it, okay? The Smoking Gun, say the anti-Courtney people, is a recording where Kurt can clearly be heard on background vocals in the latter half of the song. Let's have a listen, and then we'll try and dissect what's happening here. Courtney Love and Hole with a mysterious, unofficial version of Asking For It, the one that did not make the Live Through This album. And that is, apparently, hubby Kurt Cobain on vocals. So what's going on here? Well, no one really knows, but speculation is that this was recorded in a studio in Brazil between dates on a Nirvana tour of South America. Courtney was traveling with Kurt. Now, it's well documented that Nirvana checked into Areola Studios in Rio de Janeiro for four days. January 19th to the 22nd of 1993. Nirvana had some ideas for songs and wanted to get them down on tape. Nirvana soundman Craig Montgomery produced these sessions. It's also very well documented that Hole recorded some material during these sessions. In fact, if you look at an official rarity CD called My Body the Hand Grenade, you'll find a demo of Miss World. That is listed as having been recorded at these sessions. It's speculated that Kurt played guitar on that song, but... No one has ever confirmed that. Therefore, it's really not that big a leap to assume that the version of Asking For that we just heard was also recorded during the Rio sessions. Or was it? Just another little mystery in the entire Courtney and Kurt saga. I have two more weird recordings for you before we're done. We'll hear David Bowie's biggest embarrassment. And coming up next, something that was considered to be porn more than a hundred years ago. Yes, you heard me. Porn. Next, hang on. Welcome back to part one of a 10-part series called 100 Weird Things About New Rock. And the topic today is 100 Weird New Rock and Alternative Recordings. Now, I will admit that there is nothing new rock about this strange recording that we're about to hear. In fact, it's more than 100 years old. But back in its day, Oh, it was definitely alternative. I ran across this when I was researching some shows on censorship. Now, we hear a lot about censorship in music these days. Marilyn Manson, the outcry against some segments of hip-hop, songs that glorify drugs and sex and violence. You know the kind of stuff I'm talking about. But wailing against the evils of recorded music is not new. In fact, people started making morally suspect recordings within just a few years of Thomas Edison inventing the phonograph in 1878. This takes us back to the days when sound was recorded on wax cylinders. These things were very fragile and wore out quickly, and precious few have survived. Strangely enough, though, part of the survivors include three cylinders that are part of a collection called the Stag Party. 
These recordings featured a series of body and semi-dirty verses and jokes, and they sold for the outrageous price of $1.50, which back then was real money. Now, all of these recordings were, at the time, illegal due to their immoral and corrupt nature. In fact, the person who made and distributed what you're about to hear was caught in a government sting operation on June 24th, 1896. He was fined and sent to jail for months. I think this is a fascinating historical document that shows that censorship of recorded material has been with us since the beginning of, well, recorded material. Now, take a listen. This is a takeoff of the to-be-or-not-to-be soliloquy from Shakespeare's Hamlet. Only this time, the dude is mourning a case of gonorrhea. This is called, and oh man, this was scandalous. This is called Gimlet's To Pee or Not To Pee. To drug and pee, to pee, there's a chance to burn. Hey, there's the rub. When we've unrolled this cotton coil, for in that voiding act, what? A very dirty, highly censored, and illegal recording from 1896. Not new rock, but like I said, a highly, highly alternative recording for its time. This is one of the oldest and certainly one of the weirdest recordings in the ongoing history archives. By the way, I think we can all agree that technology and porn go hand in hand. The first dirty recordings appeared less than 10 years after the invention of the phonograph. And the best that anyone can tell is that the first porn movie appeared two years after the first public exhibitions of films began in 1894. Okay. Our final weird recording is a giant embarrassment to David Bowie, although to him it seemed like a really good idea at the time. Bowie will forever be remembered as one of the most influential figures in the history of rock and roll. In fact, you can make a very strong argument that just about all things new rock and alternative can in some way be traced back to David Bowie. But in the middle 1960s, Bowie was floundering. His career was in big, big trouble. Although he had been making records for years, he had yet to find a voice and an image that excited the public. So in desperation, he tried a new approach. He knew he needed some kind of commercial breakthrough, any kind of commercial breakthrough. So on January 26th, 1967, Bowie recorded this. The voices belonged to Bowie and his producer, Gus Dudgeon. This was released as a single on April the 14th of 1967, and it was a giant, huge flop. But of course, Bowie eventually became a big star, and this song became a huge skeleton rattling around in his closet, especially after old record labels kept reissuing it after Bowie became a household name around the world. And much to Bowie's horror, a 1973 reissue of this song became a major, major hit in the UK. He's never been able to live that down since. Ladies and gentlemen, from 1967, David Bowie's The Laughing Gnome. Said the laughing gnome. David Bowie and the Laughing Gnome. A flop in 1967, a hit in 1973, and an embarrassment for all time. Nice little skeleton in David Bowie's closet. Which brings us to the next show in this series. Recording and releasing the Laughing Gnome is something that David Bowie really, really regrets. Which got me thinking. 
What other performers have things from their past or their present that they would rather gloss over? On part two of 100 Weird Things About New Rock, we'll look at the dark past of 10 different performers. What's in their background that they'd rather we never, ever discuss again? I think you might be surprised. Join me next time for part two of 100 Weird Things About New Rock. Technical productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 